Hello, everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hawkberg, Arcanex Editorial Manager here. The interview you're about to hear was recorded as part of Arcanex's first ever live podcasting event series, Next Up, held at Giant Jai Gallery in Los Angeles's Chinatown. As we ease into season two of our podcast, we'll be releasing over four hours of interviews and discussions from Next Up. Stay tuned to hear more about an exciting change to our shows this season and enjoy this interview from Next Up. Okay, so uh, this is our final panel of the evening. I guess uh, we can rewind back a few months ago. Every week in, in the Arconnect office, we all get together and we talk about what we're working on. We talk about just local topics. And the drought came up, obviously. And as I recall, Nicholas suggested writing something about the drought. And as we were talking, another... Another idea that we had been discussing for a long time about doing a competition kind of came up, and we thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to, to do a competition, to, uh, to pose to the architecture and design community ways in which design and creative thinking can be applied in ways that address the drought. You know, maybe not fix the drought, but uh, address issues of the drought, come up with solutions. So, um, so yeah, we, Nicholas put together this really uh, amazing speculative uh, scenario, future, near future scenario that, that uh, we based the, the brief on. And we had the, uh, the good fortune of putting together an amazing jury. Uh, three of the jurors are here with us tonight, plus Green as Fuck, sorry. Uh, <laughs> green as Fuck is joining us from Brooklyn. Um, they are an uh, experimental uh, landscape architecture practice. And here with us in person is Peter Zellner, who you, I'm sure, have talked to since I've seen you making the rounds tonight. As everybody knows you. Uh, Chris Anderson. Charles. Charles. Char- Char- I'm sorry. Uh, uh, close enough. I've been getting a lot of names wrong tonight, so <laughs> I'm sorry. Charles Anderson, uh, landscape architect here in, in Venice, recently uh, transplanted from the Northwest up in Seattle. And Hadley from uh, Arid Lands Institute. Uh, and your partner, Peter, unfortunately, is not here to join us, but uh, you, you joined us as a duo. And um, there are some other jurors that aren't uh, here tonight, including uh, James Familietti, who's the, uh, the head water scientist at NASA. Who else? Allison Arif from uh, Spur Institute. Jeff Mana, who's in uh, New York at the time. He really wishes he could have attended. So, so yeah, let's, uh, let's use this opportunity to talk about uh, what, what we found. The competition was the, uh, the winners were just announced a few days ago. Uh, we were really impressed with the quality of the work, and maybe you guys can take it from here. What do you guys think about the, the work that was produced? Peter. I was about to defer to my colleagues who actually have a better grasp of the topic because I'm only an architect. But, um, I, you know, what really interested me was, was uh, the range of responses in both the pragmatic and speculative ca- categories. I was, you know, obviously as an architect most attracted to projects which displayed innovative aesthetic solutions to what I would deem scientific or technical problems. So as an architect, I, I, I was really looking for things that tackled the problem of drought, but also were capable of generating novel architectural solutions. And so I think what I'm most interested in talking about tonight, and, and speaking specifically to the winners, is um, where the the schemes that, that, that were permeated managed to move beyond merely the you know, the obvious dire problem that we're facing and actually begin to come up with solutions that also spoke to other problems such as density, such as 
you know, how infrastructure can be more integrated into our communities in a way that's meaningful um, as opposed to just technical. So, so that's where I would leave it, and maybe we can go from there. Yeah, I think when, when I looked at the uh, competition entries, there is kind of two areas that interested me. One of them is the universal view of, of, of life essentially on the planet and what do we do when we run out of water and how are we going to address this problem? And there were quite a few entries like that. And the other one is just simply how do you get through the day here now? And um, some, some entries uh, showed real clever ways of, of dealing with issue very easily, like, like things that collect water that you can go and get a sip of water out of in the landscape, for example. Um, and the other one to the more universal thing is what do you do if you have to desalinate the ocean in order to get the water you need? And do you use nuclear power, or is there some other way to, to, to do that? So there were incredible stories that were written and scenarios that were very in-depth. So going through this whole process was like almost going to school to see so many different ideas generated. And it uh, took a long time to get through them all and give them a good do. I think one of the things I was interested in was seeing the blur between the speculative and the pragmatic Many, many, many of the entries could have been entered in the other category than they they did enter in. And I think we need to really be listening to that and listening for that. I think um, it's possible we have actually kind of outgrown, at least in this particular arena of work, the distinction between the pragmatic and the speculative. We're moving into a, a, a set of challenges that are, by definition, not conceptually but scientifically uncertain variability and the, the climate scenarios that we face longer drought periods and more intensive rain events are by definition unfamiliar to us. They are uh, Every project to a certain extent is going to have to be speculative and by the same token every project is going to have to work and I feel that um, what I liked about many of the projects that we saw is that they were really grappling with both the how can this uh, affect the public sphere and the design of the built environment in general, but also really specifically getting at um, some of the techniques of water, wastewater, gray water, conservation, desal, which I will also say from the point of view of having uh, hosted a drylands design competition in 2012, I saw maturity and sophistication in the responses that were grappling with that level of detail that we didn't see as much of three years ago. I would say there's a conversation going on in architecture that is, has matured a bit in, just in the last three years. Drought, drought's good for business for, for doing this, I would say. So just to introduce you guys personally, uh, we have Ian Quaite and Colleen Tweet from Green as Fuck. So go ahead, you guys. Hey. Yeah, just like picking up on what Hadley said, um, I think that the real, like for me, it was, uh, was very cool to see um, that blur between speculative and functional, but also the sort of willingness to pick up the narrative from Nicholas's text and like and carry that through. That was, that seemed present in a lot of the projects and you know, taking it on and um, like producing all these different scenarios. And then, yeah, for me also, seeing different things like kind of mark different points on the timeline between something that's like a more immediate like response into something that projects like 10 years, 20 years, 100 years into the future and sort of like seeing the, the, the way that that disseminates through culture in more like radical ways so that can deflect like into the future. It was cool to like see how people were kind of like positioning themselves in that timeline. I don't know anything to add. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. The work was awesome. And um, really cool to see how people are thinking about, about these things and where the kind of current conversation is. Thanks, guys. So as in your role as jurors, um, you all have architectural backgrounds or explicit architectural professions active, but how did you approach the evaluation process of these proposals as coming from architects? Because when we pitched this competition, we understood that architects would have a particular perspective from which to view the problems of the drought as both structural and and cultural and trying to affect these different changes in people's behavior as how, and, and how we run our water systems to try to get out of this drought situation and prevent it from ever becoming as dire again. But the proposals were all over the map. I mean, it was really amazing how many different ways people took this from like a product design perspective to policy, rewriting a California water policy to creating digital currencies of water to actual more straightforward architectural proposals. So how did you guys approach evaluating these proposals as jurors, um, as juror architects, and evaluating them as architectural proposals? Um, we can start with Charles or Peter, whoever would like to go ahead I can first. be Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, look, I, earlier tonight, my colleague and friend Marcelo Espina was talking about the fact that the word technology is sort of overused. And I think sustainability is another word that has become very glib. So... What I was looking for were projects which moved beyond, uh, you know, the more superficial, you know, renditions of what sustainability means, and a lot of it now is kind of market speak, and and push towards, I, I think, and I don't even want to use this word innovation because it's everywhere. I mean, Bernie Sanders uses this term all the time now. Uh, but really, I, I mean, I was looking for projects that actually attracted me to their aesthetic solutions. So, for instance, I think the second or third place winner, Urban Swales, which was uh, an RPI-led project, um, you know, it was frankly, was beautiful. You know, I mean, it was interesting technically, and I think it was very thorough in terms of its accommodation of the problem of how to collect and gather water. And, and But at the same time, it sort of produced these weird kind of aquifers and catacombs that, from the perspective of, of trying to produce new types of spaces for, for our city, um, seemed compelling. So I, you know, again, I mean, I, I think we have to move beyond sort of technical proficiency uh, and, and towards really what the sort of significant cultural, artistic and, and you know, political aspects of the work might be. Yeah, I, when I look at projects like this, I'm always looking for a couple major things. One is a really good story. If there's a good story and a presentation of a good story that leads to some kind of conclusion that gets my attention. And maybe I don't like the ending, but I appreciate building up to the to the story. The other one is just beautiful ideas, beautiful images. Um, there was a reaction to that we're going to solve this problem with architecture. We're going to build all these things, and they're going to do things that aren't currently being done in the world. All these funnels and these these strange objects that the carbon to put them in alone is just off the chart. So. Um, you know, they're kind of non-starters, but they're also trying to solve the problem in, in a real physical kind of way. So those were interesting ideas to see as well. I think finally uh, of, of the ideas, the one where um, water became currency became the most fan, uh, sort of fantastical idea. Even if there wasn't much of a design in it at all, it was just I, be, I became a communist in this whole process um, in, in the idea that you're going to if you're going to get water, you're going to you're going to learn how to trade for it. You're not just going to turn on the tap and it may get that way someday. So I think that was pretty fantastic to to read to hear. 
For me, replicability was a, a kind of major criteria for was it actually meeting some of the challenges that you all had set forth, the idea of solutions for drought, extended drought, or climate change, or however you want to sort of couch it. Um, so the singular projects left me less enthusiastic than those that showed they had possibility as um, a product, a tool, a framework that could be scaled up, scaled out, transferred, uh, and also had a distinctiveness that allowed for the kind of emergence of a, um, a particular place within it. So I, I happen to love the fact that the three um, prize winners in the pragmatic category, for me, each has a kind of shakiness alone as a project, but I uh, I liked very much uh, that they share a certain attribute, which is uh, framework, the currency, framework, the how do we figure out the city to be absorptive, and uh, that was the storm stormwater one, and uh, the... the um, the, the sort of vessel-like building uh, that I think maybe won the first prize, if I'm not mistaken. It was a building almost as a tool to accomplish a specific task. And to me, the three of them actually worked very well together as a kind of piece of policy, a piece of geospatial science, and a piece of actual design, all of which could be kind of tweaked in a variety of ways in other scenarios. That's what I liked about them. And I, I want to just add one thing just to build on that. Um, I think the second or third place winner in the pragmatic category also dealt with shifting social behaviors. And so I thought that maybe some of the schemes, and I apologize because I can't remember all of them, but some of the schemes that actually push towards really shifting how we imagine we use water were very compelling because it seemed like some of the solutions had less to do with physical problems than to do with the resistance in the community to recycling water. You know, and I think this is a big issue, gray water, brown water, black water. So I, I found some of the, the uh, pragmatic solutions that really were pushing at convincing a public to begin to be more conscious of water usage to be really provocative. As a, and, and those weren't really physical solutions, they were, and they weren't policy solutions. They were more to do with kind of changing the personal politic of the user. Ian or Colleen? Sure. Um, well, you know, it, it, it takes a village uh, of ideas to, to address something as, as complex as the issues that we're talking about here. So I, I think we were, we were really open to a lot of different kinds of, um, of submissions to address it from multiple angles. Uh, so, you know, like I think in general, we were interested in, in things that are making kind of like uh, acculturating uh, large-scale engineering solutions to to people, so things that are making space, and uh, and those are the those are the kind of ideas that that got our attention. Um, yeah, and yeah, and then and then also as like a counterpoint to the sort of like uh, more functional-based projects, like I mean, even just jumping off from like again like Nicholas's text, that is like. It, the, like this feature that we're addressing is a very surreal, weird circumstance, and some of the projects sort of took a surreal, weird look at at what our reality will be. I, I think that that was interesting to me, and and yeah, like just like a diversity of tactics in terms of um, how these changes are going to be integrated into like the present state of culture. So, so clearly, you know, we were attracted to like the captivism 
that's using metabolic means, you know, that's using plants for, um, for yeah, for remediation. For remediation, yeah. And uh, and then yeah, there's um, the like flip side of that, the we both um, loved and didn't blaze, I guess, but the um, the playing with fire, the golf course, uh, like using uh, like you know like burning landscapes to create like a you know to not use lawn anymore and and like that that is sort of a metaphor for contemporary consumer culture but also um, but also as like a, a sustainable method of planting and um, so yeah we were pretty happy as you guys are talking there's like a gushing sound of water in the space that we're in so it's kind of <laughs> apropos um <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, coming out of this uh, this competition, but also coming into it beforehand, uh, what do you guys believe the role of the architect is in relation to this or other kind of ecological crises? On, on the one hand, uh, one could argue that architecture has had a large role to play in creating these things. For example, construction in regards to climate change, construction is... Uh, one of the largest emitters of CO2. But on the other hand, architecture can also be viewed as kind of a tiny little aspect of the construction industry. And what do you think, What uh, essentially, what, what do you think the architect's role should be in relation to these things, drought and other crises? Well, I, I think architects have to be proactive in, in actually leading the discussion. And I think, as you rightly note, I mean, even if 5% of the built environment is actually designed by architects that we admire that 5% can have a very deep impact in terms of distributing ideas that are, are, are useful for the rest of society. So I think about an architect like Glenn Merkett in Australia, who we've discussed before, whose interest in, and this is in the 70s, in really just in collecting rainwater was actually deeply impactful and, and, and I think had a, had a, at least in Australian society, had a, had a, had a social effect because you know, in that country, people like his work and notice that some of his houses actually collect rainwater, and then people started to actually add rainwater tanks to their houses. So I think that that architecture can have a role in distributing ideas, and I and, and I use architecture with a capital A here, and and also can be a vehicle for popularizing concepts that you know the general construction industry may not be ready to take up immediately. My turn. <laughs> and a landscape architect. Where, where, where do architects um, drive this train or, or move this idea forward? Um, I, I, think it, I think of Paulo Soleri a lot when I think about some of the images that I saw today uh, or during the competition because he was interested in creating systems that would be sustainable and a lot of that is water. I think one of the presentations we saw showed, uh, I think it was in Fresno or somewhere, where they were showing a connection of an infrastructure system that carries people and also carries water along with it, the duality of systems. And I think anytime those kinds of ideas um, can be implemented more rigorously for future development and retrofitting current infrastructure, I think that's a net benefit. And I think architects should be really looking, and, and engineers and landscape architects should be looking really hard to, to rephrase or repurpose infrastructure to solve the problem. It isn't like we don't have enough water, we kind of do. We just need to know how to use it in a much, much better way. And and I know there's a town here in California that's shipping or bringing water because their, their wells are empty, and it's ridiculous amount of money in, in uh, oil costs 
transporting water so these people can live again, just to imagine what it costs to move water alone in the state and, and how we can find a way to do not always increasing that amount. So I think that's a leadership role that needs to come out, come from designers so it looks good as well. I think architects have a huge opportunity um, at a couple of uh, scales that we haven't fully exploited yet. Um, I think landscape architecture has already shown a fair amount of leadership in understanding how water behaves and how we can uh, best respond to it under certain conditions. But I think architects are uh, mm, catching up, shall we say. And I think that traditionally there's been uh, some thinking that uh, the best we can do is spec fixtures that will Mm -hmm. save us some gallons in the shower or when we flush or maybe uh, how we plant our front lawns and how we irrigate them. And then in terms of urban design, we've abdicated to the engineers and the policymakers for the large-scale fixtures that make our cities work, the infrastructural scale. And I think architecture actually can reclaim at least two scales between the small fixture and the large fixture. One is urban design, uh, really understanding the science of how does a, a basin work, how is the soil working, and how can architecture actually grow up out of that soil appropriately. And that's not just functionality, that's placemaking, that's appropriate and um, potentially very exciting placemaking in drylands. The other is building systems. I think we've plugged a lot of fixtures in around buildings in places like Australia that are hideous to the eyes and hideous to, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the right thing, but they're not enhancing um, our experience. They're not actually supporting us to become water conversant. And I think the idea that somehow building systems themselves, whether it's roof packages, uh, new forms of foundation wall packages, the 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 role of metering and visual indications of water usage actually become part of our design vocabulary is a huge opportunity for architects. Brooklyn? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, speaking personally, like, I mean, most simply, like, the reason that I uh, became interested in SDF architecture is I'm just simply interested in, like, where and how humans touch the earth and what that interface is and looks like. And so as part of that inquiry, like, these to- like this topic is just inherent, it's built into that. And I think it's just built into the field. Like you can't, there's no even question about addressing it or not because it's just like seamless. So yeah, that's all. <laughs> and it's also, I think it's a, it's an exciting time to be a designer, be a landscape designer as it were. Because we're, I feel like designers are sort of stepping into these new shoes because uh, we have such a synthetic discipline that's starting to gain more traction in terms of how it can influence engineering and how it can influence the built environment. And I feel like what we're starting to find is that the the built in, the the forces that make the built environment are very conservative, and it's the, the you know the time is now and the places are these areas of conflict, environmental conflict, um, that make new ideas happen. Um, so, so, you know, we were excited to like, to look in and weigh in on these places that, that are, are really going to be quite generative. Um, yeah, it's like crisis, like breeds some sort of strange new fertile territory. For sure. Yeah. And, and to, encourage that or to um, reinforce that, as Hadley said, it's good for business, (laughs) which is uh, not necessarily to diminish it or make a cynical note of it, but just to say that people are 
hyper vigilant and hyper aware in these crisis scenarios of the ways that architecture can be used as a mitigating or solution in this overwhelming drought. I wanted to open up to the, to the panel one more time for just any additional comments as we kind of close out the panel um, and also give the audience an opportunity to think about some questions that we can address. Oh, we got one right now. Fantastic. Okay. Hello. I was debating whether I asked this question or not. It's a little off topic, but um, oil and uh, Charles touched upon it briefly. Uh, so... Um, you know, I know it's a it's a big topic. I, I've I've been doing a little bit of reading on post peak oil scenarios, and um, it's it's alarming to me. And so I'm I guess just asking in general: Do you feel is there a lot of talk about this in in your in your professions, architecture and, and landscape architecture? Is you know I know drought and, and water is a big topic right now, but um, it seems to me that oil and uh, you know, the limited amount of oils is a huge, something we should really be concerned about. I don't know, thoughts about post-peak oil crisis. Well, look, I mean, I, you know, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine up in Mill Valley today while I was driving in a, in a non-electric vehicle. And, um, and what we were talking was, like, don't worry about the super PACs, worry about the oil industry, right? Like, they are going to fuck up our election. And they are very resistant to, you know, frankly... Any technical solution to the problem of energy and the distribution of energy that's free because it will disrupt their economic model, right? And so I think a lot of these topics, whether it's water conservation or it's rethinking our energy model and how it interrelates with how we build our cities, has something to do with the fact that there are vested interests in maintaining how and where we extract resources from our planet. So, you know, anything that, that smells of, of free energy also smells, I think, to certain portions, conservative portions of our culture, of not having to work so much, or maybe the distribution of resources in a more equitable fashion, and imagine the impact that would have on cities. But, yeah, I, I mean, you can't disconnect, I think, resources whether it's the energy we use to power our vehicles or the water we drink and how we you know, recycle it in, in the future so that we don't waste it. Um, from the political conversation that is very fraught right now and is up front and center, you know, as the Donald Trumps of the world fight very hard to maintain a 20th century model of living in which there's an, an equal and inequitable distribution of resources on this planet, um, that's the topic right now, right? And, I, I mean, we're just architects and designers, and, and we probably have, you know, very little stake in, in that political piece of it. But I think you've, you've put your finger on the button, which is that, you know, right now we're in the middle of a radical shift in our culture in terms of who controls resources. And more importantly, the possibility that certain resources could be free and equitably distributed um, will shift the shape of our society. And that's what certain people are fighting against right now. I think the carbon issue is a huge one because you can't even make a, a non-green, let's say a, a, a water suck park for, sorry for the word, green and fuck, suck. I mean, we can go there. It yeah. is late. Yeah. Um, but but, but the, car, the carbon that goes into even building, turning a park into a water-saving park is real carbon. It's oil. And it all comes down to that. So so that's that's a really 
really important issue. Maybe they like it when we change parks because we use oil to change it, and they'll mm. continue to fund us to do that, and we'll get a water-efficient park out of the deal. But but I think carbon, we, we don't think about that when we rebuild things. And, and then, then along those lines, Tongva Park and Grand Park are new parks in town. And, and it breaks my heart to go to these places and not see native plants or really drought-tolerant parts as the key element in those parks. It surprises me because just like th- those are things that are going to teach people out there what to accept and what's okay. And if they're told you can only have this here, you know, it's, it, it, it's difficult for people to accept that in their suburban landscapes. Is there time to respond to the question as well? I just want to say that in similar to sort of constructing speculative and pragmatic as separate, constructing water and energy as separate in California is a sort of false dualism, and they can only be considered together. Our water resources for the last 100 years have been very energy intensive, mostly in the last 50 to 75 years. Carbon intensive energy, oil among them, but also coal and gas, big, big, big part of our portfolio in the West. Um, have warmed the atmosphere and made it harder to secure those water resources known as snow in the mountains. As we move toward water solutions in the West, they're only solutions if they are also energy solutions. In other words, adding more uh, CO2 to an atmosphere in order to go find that water and bring it from a farther place or to desalinate at great carbon cost is actually not a, not a solution. The political and social implications in a built environment that is designed to localize, to take advantage of this variable climate that we're now living in, long drought periods, and then what we're expecting this winter, very intensive El Nino uh, event. That's a different form of design. It's a different kind of urbanism. It's a different kind of uh, weaning from not only the imported water system, but the big energy that supports that water system. It's a whole new kettle of fish to look at a localized urbanism around water, and it's inseparable from the energy dimension. So we tend to think, I guess we take a various viewpoints on timescales, and from a geologic perspective, gas and oil, um, you know, hydrocarbons are, have been an energy source for a long time for life on Earth. Uh, if you look at um, folks like uh, Thomas Gold, who talks about the, the uh, deep, what's it called, deep Earth hypothesis, he's talking about some of the original organisms are living on hydrocarbons that are vents uh, in, under the ocean. Um, so, you know, getting your energy sources from oil is not necessarily a new thing. Um, and so we just took a trip to North Dakota looking at new embodiments of, like, uh, and new new organizations around uh, oil and energy. Extraction. Yeah. And extraction, yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, obviously there's, like, some change in how oil is extracted by, like, microorganisms and how it's extracted by big business. Um, But in this case, I feel like, you know, it's like take whatever lessons we can from the, like, petrochemical era and and that industry is, like, it's big and it's aggressive. And and, in that that way, I think it's a challenge for us as designers to be, like, big and aggressive with our ideas. Um, And, like, one of the things we saw in North Dakota, like, the landscape super mechanized with like you know this huge huge machines in the landscape everywhere and that's a little you know scary in some ways because there's a lot of questions in terms of water quality and 
the legacy of these kind of like massive like hydrofracking interventions. But also it was kind of inspiring and beautiful, like the scale that that was able to be realized was it was kind of amazing. So for I think it's it's a flip, you know. Uh, like we have to be we have and like we have to address industry on their scale, which is a huge, huge scale. But it can also be um, or the much trans, scale. it can be sort of transcendental. You know, the the experience of these like derricks and um, and, and I think wind turbines like can be sort of saying that they're just like they, they're operating at a scale and at a pace that's it's very slow and almost like this like industrial kind of meditation. Yeah. Thanks, guys. I really wish we had some more time for, for audience questions, but I think we're going to have to start wrapping it up. I want to thank all the Dry Futures jurors that came out, both virtually and physically, to participate in the panel. You guys were great. We really loved having all of you as jurors. I think you all brought, plus the ones that aren't able to be present tonight, really brought an incredible variety of perspectives to this overwhelming issue. And it's definitely not something we're going to stop seeing people respond to. As, as Hadley mentioned, the prior competition from 2012, it's heartening to hear that there's some development from what happened in 2012 and how people are approaching it now. So thanks again, you guys. Um, and thanks everyone who came to our first live podcasting event. We hope that if you guys are going to be in Chicago, first weekend of Chicago, that you also join us there um, and heckle us as much as possible. <laughs> Come with your questions and your issues. Tomatoes and tomatoes. We're really happy with how this went and we hope that you Stay, finish our booze, and then have a good rest of your Saturday night. Um, do we have any other closing comments? I'd just like to point out that one of the winners of the competition is here with us tonight. So I want to publicly congratulate Barry Lehrman for placing in the uh, speculative category for his uh, uh, pragmatic category for his uh, Recharge City uh, submission. And thanks, thanks for everybody for coming out again, uh, especially since we're running an hour and a half beyond schedule, and I'm sure that you all have places to go. So thanks again. Thank you.